I would like to speak uh, about joy. And joy is um, the term that's used um, in the Buddhist tradition is the word mudita. But uh, before I begin to talk about joy, I want to just say a few words more about the Brahma Viharas because joy is one of the expressions of the Brahma Viharas. And Brahma Vihara means um, God realm, basically, or, or the um, uh, Brahma is, is one of the gods of India. And Vihara um, is the, uh, means home or abode or dwelling place or realm. And so um, that it said when one re realizes the Brahma Viharas, one lives as if uh, uh, one is a god. And what, what it points to is, is the um, qualities of the awakened heart, of the heart that's free. And so there are four different um, qualities that are emphasized in the teachings of the Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes, or sometimes they're also referred to as the sublime abodes because these are sublime qualities of heart and mind. Um, and there are four qualities that I'm sure you're familiar with, at least individually, um, which are um, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And um, taken as a whole, they provide a roadmap for the way the awakened heart responds to life. And it's a beautiful little map, and you can use it both in general, in daily life, but also as a meditative meditation technique even. So the first one, metta, or loving-kindness, love or loving-kindness, also has a different translation, which is friendliness. And it's the heart's openness to life and openness to the way things are and a kind of friendly attitude. And its best um, um, example is the Dalai Lama, who says he meets each person as if they're an old friend. And you can imagine how that would be to meet people you don't know, as if they're an old friend. It, it's just a basic friendliness towards life, towards other people. Um, and then when there's suffering, the heart has this capacity to morph or to attune to what's happening so that when there's suffering, compassion arises. Um, when there's um, something to be happy about, there's success, there's goodness, there's gladness, there's uh, um, anything that might be appreciated or, or enjoyed, then joy arises. And equanimity is considered the wisdom quality of heart that sees things as they are. And when I think about Mahara, one simple way to understand this, it's a little bit like a parent who, um, as your child grows and matures, um, they go through all these different phases. And you know, sometimes they struggle, and sometimes they're successful, and sometimes it's easy, and sometimes it's hard. But there's some understanding that the parent has, oh, this is the way it is. And it's okay, and it's okay. Even when the child uh, struggles, it, it may bring compassion, uh, it may be difficult, but you understand this is how life is. Um, and so there's a sense of equanimity. And it could be one way. One thing I love about the Brahma Vihara is it can be a whole way to practice. You can just sit and practice starting by being friendly towards your experience, whatever it is. And then when you're um, suffering, let the compassion come.
instead of judgment or some idea that you're doing something wrong, just let yourself be compassionate when you're having a hard time when you're sitting. And then when it's easy or you're, you're very concentrated or there's something that you enjoy, then let the joy be there. And then the equanimity is kind of the ground of the heart that sees the way things are in practice. So you let each thing come and go, whether it's difficult, whether it's joyful, whatever might be here. So it's a little bit just about the broader sense, because often we talk about these qualities of mind outside the context of the bigger map of the Brahma Viharas. And so, although I'd like to talk specifically about joy, I'd also, I just want you to have a little sense about that it's part of something bigger than just joy. <clears throat> the word mudita means, in the Pali, means to be pleased, to have a sense of gladness. And this is one of the qualities of heart that comes as we start to relax, let go, not cling to things, not hold on so tightly, not push things away, that there's a quality of gladness or of joy, of, of being pleased. And mudita is most often translated as um, sympathetic joy, sympathetic joy. Sometimes it's translated as empathic joy sometimes appreciative joy, sometimes gladness. Sometimes it's translated as just joy. And that's the translation I like best, joy. And partly following on the words of Thich Nhat Han, who said, some commentators have said that mudita means sympathetic joy or altruistic joy, the happiness we feel when others are happy. But that is too limited. It discriminates between self and other. A deeper definition of mudita is a joy that is filled with peace and contentment. We rejoice when we see others happy, but we rejoice in our own well-being as well. How can we feel joy for another person when we do not feel joy for ourselves? And then he says very emphatically, he says, joy is for everyone. Now, in the way that we're talking about here, sometimes it's said that joy and really all the qualities of the Brahma Viharas need to be rediscovered or relearned. That it's not exactly the joy of winning, although there's a quality of joy there, or the joy of you know getting what we want, although there's joy in that. But it's, it includes the sublime quality of joy, a joy that's really wholesome and really generous, really giving and um, non-divisive. It's not a joy that divides like, oh, I've got it and you don't. It's, it's a really open joy. It's a, it's a pleasure to that kind of joy because it doesn't make any boundary between ourselves or anybody else. <clears throat> this is from Nanapanaka Tara, who is a monk in, uh, I think, Sri Lanka, who writes really beautifully about the Brahma Viharas. 
He says, let us teach real joy to men and women. Many have unlearned it. Life, though full of woe, holds also sources of happiness and joy unknown to most. Let us teach people to seek and find real joy with themselves and to rejoice in the joy of others. Let us teach them to unfold their joy to ever sublimer heights. I always like, he uses a slightly archaic language that I really like. Life, though full of woe, he says, holds also sources of joy. Galway Canal says, talks about this relearning quite poetically. This is a poem that you, you may have heard in the Dharma because it's so, it's such good Dharma, but it's worth reading again. He says, the bud, the bud stands for all things. Even, I have to just say one thing about this. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. The bud, it's an interesting word, bud. I've, I've read this poem for 20 years, and I realized recently that bud is the same root as Buddha. Bud, bud. And so you could hear it, the bud, like a flower stands for all things, or you could hear it as the Buddha stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and touch blessings of earth on, on the sow, and sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops of the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, down through the great broken heart, to the sheer blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering, from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of sow. We forget who we are. We forget our beauty, our goodness. <coughs> we forget our joy. We forget the joy that's not based really on much at all. The joy of being. The joy of being alive. The joy of seeing or feeling. The joy of thinking even. It's amazing. Sometimes on long retreats, people start to have so much fun thinking that we have to stop them. <laughs> they get so, because the thoughts are like, wow, you know, it's just amazing what you can think. Or amazing how vividly your memories might be at times as you sit on a retreat. And, and then it's, you start to wonder, well, what is reality? Because it's so vivid, just, just the thought of it's so vivid sometimes. 
Sometimes people lose touch with their joy a little bit because there's so much difficulty in life. Um, or sometimes people think they shouldn't have joy because other people are suffering. When I first gave this talk, it was at the beginning of the war. And um, so there was this question about, well, what, what do you mean joy? You know, we're at war. This is not the time for joy. Who knows? I don't know if that's true or not. I know reading about the Dalai Lama, who I like to use, I think he's a really good example, is a book called Sorrow Mountain. And in Sorrow Mountain is the story of a nun who was in prison for 20 years and um, in Tibet and then gets out of prison, escapes from Tibet, comes over the Himalayas into, into India. And the Dalai Lama meets with all the Tibetans who escape. And so she came to Dharamsala, and it was one of the things that kept her going for 20 years was the belief and hope that she would meet the Dalai Lama in this lifetime. And so she gets her wish. It's very moving. The, the whole book is moving, but especially this scene where she meets the Dalai Lama again. And she starts to bow, and the Dalai Lama won't even let her bow, grabs her hands. And, and he says to her, tell me, tell me everything that happened. And it's kind of amazing to really reflect on that, that he must say that to everyone. And then he listens to the story of what happened, of all the suffering. And, and in, in the book, they, she says how they cried together, you know, as she told the stories. And the reason I mention it now is because I don't know anybody more joyful than the Dalai Lama. That if you've ever been around His Holiness, you know, he can be very serious, he can give a teaching, and then it's, all of a sudden he's giggling like a kid. Or he's bouncing on his cushion, or he's pretending to be a rabbit if he thinks you're being too stiff or something. For those of you who might have been here when he was here with us, at one point he said, oh yeah, people, they sit, you know, they sit still, but, you know, maybe they, maybe even the chickens sit still, you know, for a long time. They're not really meditating, so, you know, don't just meditate. You have to study and think, and he was, he's just fun. And he laughs. There's a new book called um, Overcoming Destructive Emotions. Really bad title, but a good book. <laughs> and uh, and, um, and they, one of the scientists in the book studies faces and the movement of faces. And he studied the Dalai Lama's face. And he said the Dalai Lama has the musculature of a 20-year-old because his face is so expressive of both the sorrow and the joy. So, um, again from Jnanapanakatera, he says, noble and sublime joy is not foreign to the teaching of the enlightened one. Wrongly, the Buddha's teachings is sometimes considered a doctrine espousing melancholy, you know, suffering. Far from it, the Dharma leads step by step to ever loftier and purer happiness. And this is considered a path of joy, the Buddha, the Buddha Dharma, the Buddha way. It's considered a path of joy. 
the Buddha said, live in joy, live in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. And this is, he's starting, he's pointing us at the joy of the Dharma, the joy of living a life that comes into harmony with the way things are, that comes into harmony with the reality of this existence, of this realm of human life. And that as we stop struggling, or in the Zen tradition they would say, stop picking and choosing so much, we can start to delight in the way things are. We begin to enjoy. <clears throat> the Buddha placed a lot of value on joy, and. The Buddha himself, uh, when he was alive, was known as the happy one. Um, and one of the kings in, um, uh, the, in the areas that the Buddha's followers lived described his followers as joyful and elated, jubilant and exalted. And this is not how we usually think about monastics, right? I mean, but, but this is often the case, except it's usually sublime, so we might not recognize it if we're using the usual way we think about what joy looks like. So the Buddha's followers were described as joyful and elated, jubilant and exultant, enjoying the spiritual life with faculties pleased, free from anxiety, serene, peaceful, and living with a gazelle's mind. May you all have a gazelle's mind. I had to look that up to figure out what, what that meant. And in the commentaries, a gazelle's mind means that they were lighthearted. And you all know that quality when you're feeling lighthearted about things. Everything's easy then. It's not a big deal. Things aren't so personal. Even the personal things aren't so personal. It's just, it's just how it is. And we can enjoy the various flavors of life as it's presented to us. Now, even as I say this, in my own experience, mostly I haven't heard teachings about joy in Buddhism. I've heard about dukkha. Do you all know the word dukkha? No? Dukkha is most uh, commonly translated as suffering. You, everybody know the word suffering? <laughs> and, you know, and it's true, and it's very important to speak to suffering, to address suffering, to uh, look at suffering, to examine suffering, to study suffering, and to see how suffering can lead to freedom. It's central in the Buddhist teachings of the Four Noble Truths. is suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's freedom from suffering, and then there's a path or various skillful means to allow us to be free of suffering. But, and, and so suffering is emphasized in the Buddhist teachings. Compassion is emphasized tremendously, which is really important as the response to suffering. It's very important not to judge our suffering or have to add more pain to our suffering in any way, shape, or form, but just to see it as it, is, as it is and allow the heart's natural response, which is compassion and kindness. 
And in fact, compassion is considered a, a major part of the path in Buddhism. You often hear the two wings of the path are wisdom and compassion. Wisdom and compassion, that they go together. Um, but maybe we undervalue joy. Maybe we need to speak about it more, examine it more, recognize it more, and allow it to um, come forward more. André Gide, French philosopher, I believe, not sure, writer, he said, know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. How would that be for you, to embrace joy as a moral obligation? You have to be joyful. Okay? It's not bad if you have to have an obligation now and again. So there are a few ways that we can think about joy. One is how is it cultivated, but another is... What blocks joy? Because when we look at the Brahma-viharas, when we look at the awakened heart, um, sometimes we talk about cultivating these qualities of loving-kindness or compassion or joy or equanimity. But another way you can understand it is that they're innate, that they get covered over, they get obscured, they're, um, they're not recognized, um, we, we don't know, we, don't, we lose touch with them, is another way we could think about it. And so partly we want to see, well, what covers them? What blocks them? If they're already here, if, if, our true, if this is an expression of our true nature, then what is blocking it? Or what gets in the way from experiencing our joy? A few things that, in my reflection, that block joy or cover joy. Although it, it is maybe helpful to say that of all the Brahma-viharas, this is considered the most difficult to realize, that it's easier to realize loving-kindness or compassion or equanimity than to realize joy. Um, Self-judgment will block, obscure, veil your joy. How many people have ever noticed self-judgment? Anybody here? Okay. Pretty pervasive. What's interesting about self-judgment, in addition to the fact that it's kind of pandemic, is that it's not true. And we seem to live under this illusion that it is. Um, and what I mean by that is, the things that it points to may be true. Maybe I, maybe I didn't give a good Dharma talk tonight. Maybe I won't give a good Dharma talk tonight. That may be true. But that has nothing to do with my value. It may be that you make a mistake at work, or you don't get the job you want, or you don't have the spouse you want, or you don't, whatever it is that you judge yourself for, those things may be true. But your actual value is not based on any of that, at least not from a Buddhist perspective. From a Buddhist perspective, your value is innate. Your true nature is unassailable in that sense. Um, 
the idea that you that we base our value on something we do or something we get or something we have is considered um, a misunderstanding or a delusion and one of the things that one of the ways you can start to see this work is if you stop judging yourself just as an experiment you know you can go back to it if it doesn't work right <laughs> you can go back but try it for a week Try taking a week of your life and don't judge anything. And by that, I don't mean don't make critical assessment. I mean, not, don't judge with a pejorative, harsh, derisive attitude towards yourself. You still, you know, it's still fine to think, well, this was a good meditation or, you know, not so good. Or I was concentrated or I was not concentrated. That's a better assessment. Like I might sit and I might say, oh, I was really concentrated. And I might sit and I might see, oh, I really wasn't so concentrated. But there's no devaluing of myself based on whether I was concentrated or not. It's just I was concentrated or I wasn't. And when you read the foundations of mindfulness, the teachings on how to practice, that's literally how the Buddha puts it. When he's talking about, and this is the third foundation, mindfulness of mind, he says, oh, the practitioner is aware uh, that, he, that the mind is concentrated. Or the practitioner is aware that the mind is not concentrated. But there's no harsh, critical, pejorative judgment whether it's concentrated or not concentrated. This is just information that helps us practice. If we're not so concentrated, then maybe we need to focus on the breath a little more. If we're very concentrated, then we can be very open to what's ever here and use the concentration in that way. It's, it's not... It's not um, school in that way. You're not being judged. In, you don't need to judge in that way. So to begin to investigate self-judgment, to look at it, to study it, to inquire about it, to be mindful of it, in order to begin to cut the ties to it, to cut the attachment to it, the belief that we need it to function. A lot of people think that if they don't have a hard self, you know, a harsh self-critic, that they won't, they'll go crazy or they'll be bad or something. And, you know, they'll end up, who knows what. I've never seen that happen. Mostly I've seen when people stop judging themselves, they relax. And then they can be here. And the natural being here can express itself. The nature of being can express itself. And one of the ways the nature of being expresses itself is in the joy of being, in the simple joy of being here. Suzuki Roshi used to say, just to be alive is enough. Just to be alive is enough. When we're here, and, and it, then we don't need anything. Just to be alive is enough. We can enjoy so, and associated with the critical mind, the self-judgmental mind, is the comparing mind. Do people know the comparing mind? Everybody have a sense of what that is? It's great. I love it when people go do walking meditation and everybody's comparing. Oh, look how slow they're going. <laughs> I, should, I should go slower now. Or, or who do they think they are going so slow? Or, I'm just going to go fast. And da, 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 da. But we compare 
all the time. I'm, you know, personally, like when I go on retreat, I'm, I'm a pretty good yogi, and I, I don't look at people, because right? it just stimulates the comparing mind, right? So I try not to look at people at all, but I can't help looking at their socks often. As I'll notice, oh, she's wearing red socks. You know, wow, what you, what you, that's so, you know, uncool in the meditation hall, because she should really wear it. But maybe I should get some red socks, because actually, you know, you can't help it. Or why are they wearing the same socks that they were wearing last Monday night? But, you know, don't they ever change their socks? And, it, it always creates this separation, the comparing. Us, me and them, me and the other, self and other. And in, in Buddhism, the comparing mind is under, let me see, here's the jet lag now, let's see if the word comes, I, there it is, conceit. It's called conceit in Buddhism. And there are three conceits. There's the conceit that we're better than somebody else, there's a conceit that we're less than somebody else. They're better than us. And there's a conceit that we're the same. Isn't that interesting, that third one? And really, again, because it keeps positing a separation. A separation that's based on a certain kind of form, but it may not be true in reality. And so... Um, the comparing mind will often block our joy. Sometimes if somebody gets something, we actually feel bad. If somebody's happy, we can feel bad. We think there's not enough joy to go around. Uh, or sometimes if we're happy, we think, oh, we, we don't want to share it because somebody else will feel bad or because we'll lose it if we share it in some way. So the comparing mind is also something to pay attention to, um, which includes, and I'm pointing at it already, a kind of scarcity mentality. Um, you know, I think when I was younger, I, I had some feelings about people who were well off, as if that was a bad thing. Actually, I had more than some feelings. I was kind of radical, leftist, you know. <laughs> I was doing radical street theater in the 60s and, uh, in New York City, and the Living Theater, who, were, who was a great theater group who had, who had left America to live in Europe and perform, came back to America and were performing at the uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music, I believe. And they saw us performing in the park, and they loved us, and so they wanted us to come and perform in the middle of their play, their play which was their big play, Paradise Now, which was a great play. And they, they had us perform our little agitat political play in the middle of Paradise Now. And you know, and they and we performed our little play, which, you know, in Central Park we would perform and then pass the hat, kind of like Don. I've been living on Don my whole life. But um but the living theater who were very radical and liked to offend people, they would run out into the audience and they said Give them your money, you bourgeois pigs. <laughs> so it was, it was, it was uh, a very strong self and other kind of flavor to all of that. Um, but as I've grown up a little bit, um, I've come to see that um, whatever people have, I actually wish everybody could have it. You know, whatever. If somebody has something. I'm happy they have it, and really, 
you know, and who knows what, who knows what makes anybody happy? Because money sure doesn't make people happy. Um, or all the things that get um, put on a pedestal in our society don't necessarily bring joy at all. Money or looks or fame, all those things, uh, you know, they're, they're not bad, but I've seen too many people suffer in, in, in the deepest way who have all those things, in fact. They say that attachment blocks joy. Attachment blocks joy. That when we're holding tight, the joy's not it's not it's not the joy of mudita. It's not the sublime joy. We may have some joy in getting getting stuff, and that's fine. There, it's not ta- um, how can I say this clearly? I actually believe that even the most gross joy has at its root mudita that they're not totally disconnected. But, but it's not the fullness of mudita. It's not the full sublimity of uh, mudita. And so attachment will block our joy. We can't really, it's not a generous joy. It's not a, an open joy, a spacious joy. And there's a beautiful poem from William Blake that describes this so well. He said, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Doesn't that sound nice? It's the whole dharma. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. What time do we end here? Does anybody know? 9.15, okay. Um, There are a number of other things I have here certain kind of envy, jealousy blocks our joy. Um, Overexcitement can block our joy, in fact. A kind of inflation that can come with the happiness, where we actually lose touch with the essence of the happiness. We lose our ground. Um, But the one I'd like to speak to just a little more that I find very interesting is knowing blocks our joy. Knowing. And we live in a world where we know more than probably any time in the history of human beings. You know, going away, I've been in Europe teaching some retreats, and especially in, in Holland, um, where you're around people speaking another language most of the time, you get to not know a lot. And coming back to the country, to America, and, you know, it's all of a sudden the, the newspaper and just the radio, it's like so much information, even if it's good, like PBS, listening to the PBS on the way up here. And we're, you know, traveling in a streetcar in, in, uh, in Amsterdam. You don't, you don't learn so much, you know, not in terms of conceptual knowledge. And here we have so much conceptual knowledge. We have so much knowing. Um, and we think, we start to think that that's reality. 
we tend to live in that reality of our conceptual knowing. And so it blocks the more essential qualities of heart and mind and being. Um, So knowing kind of blocks our joy. Um, There's a beautiful quote. And let me say a little more about that. Knowing creates a kind of veil through which we see reality. And when that veil goes away, then things come alive in a fresh way, in an immediacy, um, where we can see the beauty in the moment. We can see, we can appreciate what Suzuki Roshi says when he says, just to be alive is enough. Because our eyes and our ears are open in a way that we're not just seeing through our ideas. We're not seeing somebody else through our belief about who they are. You know, if you really look at somebody, if you really look at anybody, you, you know, you can see your ideas about them come very quickly. But that's not who anybody is. And it's, this, it's actually true about ourselves. We have all these ideas about who we are, what our limitations might be, or what this or that about ourselves. But none of us are what we are our thoughts. And it's why meditation orients towards the immediacy of experience, towards the directness of what's here, always, now, even as I'm talking, that this immediacy has a freshness, an aliveness, a beauty, a mystery to it, that when we're awake, it's it's beautiful, it's enjoyable, it's delightful. And so Ryokan, the great Zen poet, could write, the bamboo grove in front of my hut. Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. How quickly we tire of our world because we know it. And that if we don't know it, maybe we have the opportunity to really enjoy this life. Oh, I know. I want to say a couple things about what helps cultivate joy. I'm starting in that direction already, I see. And partly I'm talking about awe and mystery and wonder. These qualities, when we let ourselves see through the eyes of wonder, of curiosity, not through the eyes of knowing so much, but through the eyes of not knowing, then joy comes a little more easily. When we don't know who we are, so in such a reified way or concretized way, we don't know who the other person is. I often give this example, but it works really well, which is my daughter, as she was growing up, at a certain point we started to do a little meditation, maybe once or twice a year, where we would sit together and she would have to see that I'm not her father and I would have to see that she's not my daughter, just for a minute or so is about all she could tolerate. And then she'd say, okay, that's enough. That's enough. You know, because it'd get a little weird. She'd actually see beyond the roles that we're in. And it didn't mean that I'm not her father, she's not my daughter, but that's not all of who we are. Those are just these roles that we're in, and they're beautiful roles to be in. But we don't need to be limited by those roles. We can both engage the roles fully, give ourselves fully, but not let the knowing deny the unknowing. 
now my daughter, who's 21, you know, when I tell her to do something she doesn't like, she says, you're not my father. (laughs) But you can do a little practice like that with anybody you're in relationship with. Could be a partner or a friend or a coworker. You don't even have to tell them you're doing it. Just take a look at them for a minute and don't see them through the lens of what you know. See them through the lens of not knowing. It gets really interesting. Recognizing joy is important. In the, in the Talmud, in the Jewish commentaries, they say something like this. They say, sorrow shared is lessened and joy shared is multiplied. And I, I believe that. I believe that that's true. And partly it's in recognizing our, our own recognition. This is the power of awareness and mindfulness. I believe the same is true in mindfulness. That uh, suffering mindfully uh, related to lessons. And joy mindfully related to grows. Um, this is from Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, when we have a toothache, we know that not having a toothache is a pleasurable feeling. (laughs) But when we do not have a toothache, most of us are unaware of this pleasant feeling. (laughs) You all understand this immediately, right? We forget. Just this, just, just to be alive is enough, just to be able to hear and see and speak and understand it's, it's good. We can enjoy. He says, only after we become blind will we be aware that having eyes to see the blue sky and white clouds is miraculous. While we can see, we are rarely aware of the miracle. Practicing meditation is to be aware of both what is painful and what is miraculous. Happiness is the nourishment of the meditator, and it is not necessary to look for it outside of ourselves. We only need to be aware of the existence of happiness in order to have it immediately. Now, there are formal practices with all the Brahma-viharas. Um, and so you can go and do a day or a week or a month or three months of Brahma-vihara practice. And you might do, if you're doing three months, you might do a month of loving-kindness and then uh, a couple weeks of compassion and then a couple weeks of joy, a couple weeks of equanimity, something like that. Um, actually, I'm describing about six weeks or eight weeks. Um, and you use phrases to help um, connect with joy, to contemplate joy. And the, it's, a, it's more of a concentration practice, a mantra practice. You, one of the phrases that you may say over and over again is, may, may, your, may my good fortune increase or may your good fortune increase, or may the good fortune of all beings increase, or may I have happiness and the causes of happiness, or may you have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all beings be happy as part of this quality of mudita. 
Um, and these are wonderful ways to practice. But since we're, we're not on intensive retreat now, I think it's interesting to consider how to practice in daily life. And you can use the phrases, that's one way to practice. But another way that I find is just to think about somebody who brings you joy. Think about someone who makes you happy. And when I was writing this, the first person who came to my mind was Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and again, I came from, remember I was doing street theater in New York. I was kind of a hippie and a hipster type and, and kind of snooty, to be honest. Um, you know, had a lot of division, you know, hippies and straight people, we used to say, or beats and squares and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, when I first saw Mr. Rogers, actually, I hated him. He was like, this is like nowhere, totally. But then after my daughter was born, I started to see Mr. Rogers through new eyes. And, and also I started doing Dharma practice. I really started to see him through new eyes because he was, he was there. And um, there's this article that was in the paper in 1998 in the Chronicle from Tim Goodman. It's called Zen and the Art of Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I'll read you a little. Mr. Rogers is the Dalai Lama of television. That point just can't be refuted. There is no better spiritual leader in this forsaken medium than Fred Rogers. Think about it. In the world of television, is there anyone more Zen than Mr. Rogers? No chance. Five minutes with this man and you're down to about 14 heartbeats per minute. (laughs) He is a de-stressing icon, a man who takes his time to finish his sentences, thinks before he speaks, and when he finally utters something, it's slow, sweet, and warm. Grown men suddenly want footy pajamas and some cocoa after a chat with Mr. Rogers. Once you bask in his soothing rays, it's clear that he's being wasted on the young. (laughs) And he goes on, he talks about how, I guess he was writing this article because Mr. Rogers had won an Emmy, a Lifetime Achievement Award. And that he was on the show, on the Emmy show, and he did something, and it's, it was kind of his signature, Mr. Rogers. He asked all the people in the audience to pause for a, half a minute or a minute and remember the people who helped them get there and to appreciate their benefactors, basically, which is one of the things we do when we do the Brahma Vihara practices, is actually we often do it, we begin with offering uh, our love or our compassion or our joy for a benefactor. And he writes, um, he says, All the big stars bowed their heads. Do you know how long 30 silent seconds on TV feels like? And it's not like you can resist the man. He tells you to take 30. You do it. (laughs) So Mr. Rogers is someone who actually has brought me a lot of joy. Or it could be really anybody. Another person who's brought me a lot of joy in my life was an African-American musician named Sun Ra. I don't know how many people here know who Sun Ra is. A few people, yeah. 
Sun Ra was totally out there. He was, he had a band, he kept a band together, a big band. Actually, his band was called Sun Ra and the Myth Science Orchestra, like Ark. <laughs> Sun Ra and the Myth Science Orchestra. And he understood the shamanistic roots of music. He really understood where music comes from and the po power and possibility of music. And he played within the jazz form, uh, but he was, he was out there even within the jazz context. But he kept a big band together, like a Duke Ellington-sized band, for something like 60 years. He was an amazing guy, playing from the 20s until he died in the 90s. And, um, and uh, his, his, the people who played with him were totally loyal to him because he was so... I, actually, I have no idea why they were so loyal to him because he was totally out there. When I used to go see him, he used to be wearing these weird head things that looked like the Tibetan lamas sometimes wear. And he'd have a long gown that would be all shiny, mirrored-like gown and be wearing thick platform <laughs> shoes and then have sunglasses in the shape of stars on. And, you know, and he'd play this totally um, improvised, out-there music. Um, and there was so much joy. There was so much pure joy. And sometimes they'd play films of the band, like when the band went to Egypt in the 50s and was circumnambulating the pyramids playing. You know, and the Egyptians had no idea what these people were about. <laughs> and they had dancers and costumes and just a great joy of life, a love of life, appreciation. Sun Ra. When he died... Um, somewhere there was an obituary and it turned out his real name was uh, Herman Blunt. <laughs> oh, God bless Sun Ra. Um, another place to pay attention to joy that I pay attention, you might pay attention, um, in San Francisco over the last really 10 or 15 years, Chrissy Field, which goes along the waterfront um, uh, on the north side, um, from like really North Beach to the um, to the bridge, has been transformed. It was it was part of the Presidio, and it was really a mess. And um, people walk there, but it was it was not so nice. And they they cleaned out all the toxins, and they then they got out all the concrete, and then they. They restored the wetlands that had been there originally, and now you can you can walk or ride your bike, which is what I do off road from North Beach to the um, to the bridge and beyond and it brings so much joy to me personally to ride and there's people of every color and every shape and every kind of coupling and um, and they're all enjoying this beautiful place and you see how good, what good things people can do, just restoring the wetlands and the joy of seeing the little kids or seeing the really old folks in walkers walking along or, or the teenagers with their pants falling off or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's just great. It's beautiful. And, you know, this is something that brings me joy. You reflect for yourself, what brings you joy? Where do you find joy? 
Begin to recognize joy in your life, people, places, things. That kind of sublime joy that's really not so much based on getting anything. It's just about being, that we're here for a short time. And we get to enjoy. It's part of the human life to enjoy. And as André Gide said, it may be a moral obligation to really begin to enjoy, to recognize our joy, and to share it with others. Here's Naomi Shihab Nye, great poet, Palestinian-American. She says, it's difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness, there's something to rub against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hand, like ticket stubs or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing, and disappears when it wants to. You are happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up full, filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches, and love even the floor which needs to be swept, the soiled linens, and scratched records. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands, and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit. As the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it, and in that way, let it be known. I love this line, she says, where she says, since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness. I haven't said this before, but the Brahma Viharas are considered boundless qualities of heart. That they're boundless. Sometimes they're called the four illimitables. That they can't be limited in any way, shape, or form. Really, when we get to this essence, this sublime quality of heart, they're boundless. And the last thing to say about mudita is... Well, here's how it's put in one of the Buddhist dictionaries that it's considered one of the four immeasurables, because it's boundless, states of a Buddha, mudita, and it manifests particularly as a limitless joy over the liberation of others from suffering. Since we're not making that distinction, let's include self and others. That there's a limitless joy in awakening, whether it be our awakening or the awakening of others. In the Dharma, it's the joy of the Dharma. And it's expressed quite beautifully by Shantideva, who said, As a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin, so I am amazed by the miracle of awakening arising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty, 
into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives us shade, the bridge that takes us across the stormy rivers, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it's agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with dharma. It is a feast of joy which we are all, to which we are all invited. It is a feast of joy. And it's not just that you're invited. You're already at the table if you're here to begin to appreciate the joy of this moment, of just being at the part of the practice, part of the liberation of the heart is to be able to appreciate, to enjoy our life, temporary, fragile, impermanent, fleeting, now. Let's sit for a minute, please. breath. May our time here together, may the goodness of our time, our practice, our sincerity, our intention, may it be for the benefit of all. May it be for our benefit, for the benefit of one another, for the benefit of all beings in all directions, in all worlds, everywhere. May our very lives be a benefit to all beings. May all beings be happy, peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, from the suffering of war, fear, division, racism, hatred, greed, hunger, delusion, confusion. May all beings be free from suffering. May we all awaken and delight in our awakening. Thank you all for your kind attention.